There is no social context except the incredibly late modern post-secular European one where religion can be circumscribed as somehow belonging only to one specifically defined area of human experience. And we, we know this, right, because scholars of religion can never agree what religion is. So you have a field, science of religion, which is basically founded on two concepts that don't successfully refer to anything. Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. This is the second episode in our new series on science and religion. And we have Carmody back on the show, this time as a guest, not a host. And she throws down a challenge to the whole idea of science and religion by questioning whether the very definitions of science and religion make any sense. Is science really one distinct body of knowledge that can be called objective? Is religion really another distinct body of knowledge about otherworldly things? Or are these definitions simply products of a way of thinking about the world that Europeans produced a couple of hundred years ago? Tune in to hear us discuss these and other difficult questions on today's episode. Hope you enjoy it. It's really wonderful to welcome Carmody back on the podcast after a little uh, hiatus due to her health. So thank you for being back here. Very good to be back. And Very good. Uh, this time we're going to talk about something we haven't talked about before, even though Carmody's been on a huge number of these episodes. We're going to talk about what your PhD was actually about, <laughs> if you can remember. Which is slightly alarming because it was a long time ago now, but, yes. um, <laughs> but still cool to have a chance to, to give words to it again. So, Emily, do you want to hit us off with a question? So, I think it's helpful to start really generally where we start most of these conversations about science and religion. So... What is science and religion to you? How do you understand it as a discipline or as an interdisciplinary conversation? And why did you decide to pursue it in your own research? Mm. That's, that's some pretty massive questions. Yes. <laughs> um, wow, where can I start with this? So maybe I can begin by saying I don't, I don't like the term science and religion as a name for a discipline or a field. Okay. And I know that's not in the context of, of where the, the conversation is now. That's not an especially interesting or original thing to say because lots of people are questioning the identity of the field, right? And, and that's not especially novel. But well, it's still something that will be worth digging into worth a bit digging later, into. I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But we can start... We, let's start with a bit more biographical, like, how did you get into this? Yeah. So yeah. the biographical dimension, interestingly, relates to the definition of the field. So I'll try and explain the, with a kind of personal voice about that. So I didn't have a much exposure to religion or theology as a as a child or as a young person didn't go to church didn't have a religious um, education to speak of um, religious education actually wasn't available at my school at all so and a totally kind of secular cultural environment that I um, was educated in all, all the way through really until I decided to study theology at university but at school the one choice I did have was to study philosophy mm. and I was incredibly blessed to be taught by the most extraordinary man, my philosophy A-level, who actually was a Nietzsche specialist. And for, for, for much of two years, we really studied Nietzsche, as well as doing some kind of moral philosophy and other things on the side and the existentialist. But the, 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 the keynote, because of the, how animated he was by, um, by Nietzsche, was this kind of deep critique of everything that we take for granted, both in moral and in epistemic terms. And it gave me Can something... Can you just say what epistemic means? Yeah, it? so to do with how, how we know what's true. Yeah. Right, how we know anything. 
And I was already of quite a skeptical and critical turn of mind, <laughs> I think. Um, but it really gave me a language to, to notice and to express the fact that we, not only do we not know very much, but we don't even know what it is to know. And that's true both in terms of things that, sort of trivial things we take, might take to be true about the world, such as the fact that we're all sitting here now, but also much deeper things to do with what's important or what's ultimately valuable, that we didn't actually have a, a secure way of knowing these things, even though everybody around me and everybody around all of us looks as though they're getting along quite well with some fairly practical certainties. Uh, we actually don't, we can't kind of follow that all the way down in order to uh, establish a foundation or to overcome our disagreements. You know, if you, Barney, have a different idea of what it is to to live and to be a human and to have a good life than I do. How can we resolve our disagreement if we don't even know what it is to know the answer to that? Yeah. So I was kind of afflicted by, and not, not, not troubled, but afflicted is the wrong word, very excited by the fact that behind all of these disciplines that I was studying, there was a deep kind of sea of uncertainty about what, what, what all of this added up to and where our confidence came from. And this and was I all as a result of reading Nietzsche? Well, it wasn't the reading of Nietzsche, it was being taught Nietzsche by somebody who lived it from the inside. Okay. You know, someone who really, really experienced that sense of vertigo that, that Nietzsche, I think, more than anyone captures. That when you've rubbed out the horizon of so-called objective truth, you have no idea which way is up mm. about yeah. anything. And it was incredibly exciting. I didn't find it threatening. I found it really exciting because I thought, so all of these other things that I'm studying at school are sort of houses built on sand. And yes. therefore, there's some structural, deep structural work that needs to be done, which is philosophy. And my interest in science and religion, coming back to the topic, I think, is really just an expression of that, right? Because both science and religion, um, and this is why, you know, we have the, the kind of history of this, of this um, field that we have, both science and religion, in a way, are claims to fill that space, claims to know what's really true and how that should organise our lives and our decisions and society and so on. Um, and so for me, the interest in science and religion just came out of this much, if you like, prior interest in knowing what's really true and how we should live. Yeah. So it wasn't a kind of departmental interest in Christianity or a departmental interest in physics, if you like. It was a much deeper and native philosophical drive, which has been with me through my whole intellectual career, and which at some point led me to frame my doctoral work very specifically in this mm. territory. Have you changed your mind about whether or not we can ultimately know anything? Has science and religion been able to kind of mm, calm those seas of uncertainty that you saw underneath everything? Not at all. <laughs> um, Great. Really not at all. No. Two things to say about that. Number one, the position that I staked out in my doctoral work, and we can talk about this if it's useful, um, I have revisited critically many, many times. And if I was writing today, I would write it differently. So that's one thing, is I've moved quite a distance since the doctoral work, but looking at, stepping back further from that towards my kind of whole trajectory, no, I don't put it this way. I find that the, the term science and religion, as they're currently used, largely OTOs. I don't think they do useful work. What does OTOs mean? Um, like, empty. Okay, that's, that's, quite, that's quite a position to hold, and I think we want to unpack that, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, that leads me very naturally onto something that else that I wanted to ask you, which is what is science and what is religion or theology, and how do these terms, maybe how are these terms traditionally used, and then why you want to push back on the use of those terms? Yeah, great question. And if, if I can be adventurous, I think it's the question. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I know that I have a tendency to approach things like this, right? That I'm interested in deconstructing the concepts we use to organize our questions. Um, and I realize there are limits to doing that. But nevertheless, the, the, co the concept of science and the concept of religion do so much work that isn't adequately unpacked. I completely agree. I always start my science and religion tutorials with the first one being on definitions and challenging the definitions that the students come to me with because that informs the relationship completely, right. how you understand the terms and, and their conjunction. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and I do think that there's now an awareness of that right in the field, mm -hmm. that people are trying to do that. But I, although I don't have any good solutions, I find myself very impatient with nearly all the definitions that are out there to the point that I, I myself would rather frame it in, if you like, traditional philosophical categories of knowledge mm -hmm. um, or goodness than in these kind of modern disciplinary categories, which I think create more problems than they solve. Can we talk through this a little bit? Can we pick a normal definition of science and then say why it doesn't work? Yeah. What's a normal definition of science? Say, knowledge of the natural world? Yeah, I might add, most people would say empirical knowledge of the natural world. Empirical knowledge of the natural world, yeah. Well, okay. I think it's not just a body of knowledge um, and this is something that we talked about in our first episode. Yeah, with, with Alistair that. McGrath. Yeah. He actually challenged the definition of science as any kind of knowledge, but as rather a methodology, a mode of inquiry about yeah. the world, which, yeah. which can never have final answers. That was the point he was trying to make. Yeah. It's never just a set of facts that you have to know. Yeah. It's a it, mode of investigating the world, which has provisional answers. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I think that that's, that's warmer as a definition. Mm. I myself am most interested in a historicizing definition. So looking at the ways in which the, con the, the, the word science has been defined and redefined and redefined over recent centuries. Okay. Noticing that modern usages of the term science come out of a very, very particular intellectual climate uh, around sort of modernism and rationalism and tend to reproduce those suppositions, including uh, something like you know, a kind of high view of empiricism, you know, a high view that all of our knowledge can, in fact, come by the senses. Those kinds of things that get folded into the concept of science. But if we look a little bit further back, we notice that uh, Aquinas talks about theology as a science, and we notice that notions of what counts as scientific certainty are constantly changing, even in the past 150 years. So just seeing, seeing the historical instability of the notion of science, I think, is very helpful. That even our understanding of science yeah. that we have now isn't stable at all, but con constantly changing. And you could say the same thing about theology, right? Exactly. But I, 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 not being an expert in science and religion myself, I at least know this much, that the, the word science comes from the Latin scientia, which just means knowledge, Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And when we refer to what we now take to be science using the word science, what we're really saying, and this I think is part of what I was trying to get in my doctoral work, what we're really saying is this is what is true knowledge now, because science means knowledge. Yes. Right, and that's why I think in a way it's more helpful to talk about knowledge than it is to talk about science, because we now act as though and talk as though and live as though science is real knowledge. And that yeah. I think is, is terribly important, that science doesn't actually in that sense refer to a set of disciplines, it refers to, uh, you know, we take it to refer to the, author the authoritative way of knowing what this world is and what we are in it. Yes. And that's all smuggled in under the notion of science. Yeah, I think that's so true. And you see this with uh, lots of prominent scientists and the way that they speak about science in the public sphere. And it comes from, in my opinion, an overwhelming lack of philosophical education yes. in the sciences. Exactly. The, exactly. the scientific foundations are never really questioned, exactly. from within the boundaries of the sciences themselves, at least. Spot on. 
spot on. And in a way, if I had to specify one goal, the goal of my doctoral work, it was to look at why have we ended up thinking that what we now call science is the ultimate and authoritative mode of knowledge? Like, what's, what's gone on there? What kind of deeper claims are actually hidden there? Because that, that organises our entire society. You know, that hierarchy of truth, if you like, or hierarchy of knowledge, or hierarchy of authority, because, of course, it is in the end about authority, that hierarchy organises our entire society and, and, indeed, our inner selves. And that seems to me amazingly unexplored. So here's a, here's a typical objection that I could imagine somebody raising to what you're saying is that the reason that we place so much trust in science is because it's proven itself to work. Mm. Like Aeroplanes take off and land where you want them to and computers send emails to a place thousands of miles away and the other person receives the email. So the, the, the scientific knowledge we can, that, that underlies these sort of technological advancements has proven itself again and again simply by the fact that it works. Mm. What would you, how would you respond to that as a definition? Yeah. So I, if I was going to do more work in this area, that's what I would like to, to look at. Mm -hmm. A couple of thoughts, and I'm at the beginning of, of, of exploring this myself, but a couple of thoughts. Number one, the category of something working is very different from the category of something being true. Mm -hmm. And we tend to collapse them. The fact that something works uh, and the fact that something is true or the claim that something is true are not the same. So noticing that science works doesn't by itself get us to a place that we might want to get to about knowing its truth. But doesn't it work because it's true? That is a claim that needs a great deal of demonstrating. Mm -hmm. What can I, um, yeah, so I- I, I guess there were certain medieval uh, health remedies and that kind of stuff that gave the appearance of working at the time, but the we would nowadays say don't actually have any basis in scientific knowledge, right? But right. that was a very yeah. rough and ready idea of working, whereas now we have, um, for example, quantum mechanics. I mean, there's, there's staggering levels of precision and accuracy that we can get from the quantum equations uh, in terms of what we can predict from them. I mean, it seems to be, it seems to me that if science isn't true, there's some, some trickery going on. There's, so it would be such an overwhelming coincidence that what science tells us about the world lines up with the way that the world seems to be, but that there isn't actually that kind of correlation between the two. That would be such an overwhelming coincidence that it seems to me that science, well, it seems to me that science works because it's true, at least in the domain that it's trying to operate over, which is the natural world. So I think that's a possible view, but I think it's not as easy to demonstrate or establish that as we might think. So... And I wish I had the examples at the top of my head. But so, for example, I've been reading recently, which I highly recommend to anyone um, who's kind of interested in the status of science as a, as a, as a form of knowledge, um, Alex Rosenberg's Introduction to Philosophy of Science. And Rosenberg is as kind of hard-nosed as they come in terms of having a tendency towards something like a reductionism or something like an absolute empiricism or some, some, something like mm -hmm. that, right? So he has a very wants to have a very high view of science. And even he admits and is quite upfront about it, that science that we now know to be wrong worked really well. Yeah, that is true. Uh, a. And B, some sciences, some uh, scientific theories that we now know to be wrong, at least in some degrees, still work 99% of the time, such as Newton's laws, for example. Mm. Yes. Um, right, so the, the fact that something works 
historically doesn't actually tell us when we look back how true it was. And then there's the additional fact, and he doesn't mention this, but I think this is really interesting and important, is that the notion of something working is itself historically and culturally constructed. What counts as working? You know, for example, this is just an example off the top of my head, right? But indigenous peoples have what is now understood to be a very, very successful uh, structure of knowledge about how to interpret and interact with their environment that has allowed them to live arguably, far more successfully than modern civilizations yeah. in the sense of sustainability, in the sense of mm. allowing their natural resources to go on replenishing, you know, the, all, all of the different criteria might, we might use. But none of them have what we would think of as modern scientific knowledge. So but they do have knowledge that works, right? Mm -hmm. It allows them to successfully negotiate their environments. And I, I'm not wanting to be totally relativist, right? That's not where I'm pushing to. But I think that the claim that science is true because it works is nowhere near as simple as it looks for well, these kinds of reasons. I mean, isn't one of the problems that people see science as being the be-all and end-all of human knowledge and the limits of human knowledge, whereas actually, wouldn't it be more helpful to say science works and is the best approximation at truth we have at the current time in its domain uh, of applicability, but it can't be said to be the final, the final word on all human knowledge uh, as it stands. So, for example, you can use... We can use science to send people into outer space, but we wouldn't try and use science for understanding the way to live a good life, for example. And then we can say, okay, well, science is still really helpful and it's right in the domain that it applies in, but perhaps it's not. We need to make sure that those boundaries aren't extended to cover everything, every aspect of human understanding. My own response to that would be to say, on what basis do we determine whether what you've just said is the right way to think of science? It's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a good there's, question. There's some discourse coming from outside science that's determining what science is there. And the question is, what's the name for that discourse? And because where's it, it coming it from? It can't be science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which underlying organising principle is being used to create that scheme of knowledge? Yes, and I think that brings us to some of what your PhD un unpacked, right? Yes. I know you should mention that this PhD is going to be published as a book pretty soon. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Which is called Theology, Science and Life. Yes, a nice, small, modest and, you know, tightly constrained topic. <laughs> well, hopefully you can talk a bit later. <laughs> hopefully you can talk later about the third term of that, Yeah, the third term. Maybe I can bring, maybe I can introduce this by talking about the category of theology or the category of religion. Yes. Yeah. Because we've been talking a bit about science. Um, and I, I'm aware that I can come across as somebody who mainly is just nitpicking about the, well, not nitpicking, but trying to kind of undermine the foundations of science, right? A little mm -hmm. bit like a, some of the, the kind of philosophers of science who wanted to kind of push for a total relativism or total perspectivism or whatever. And I, I would like to stress that in my PhD and in my work since, I'm just as interested in critiquing and destabilizing what we take to be religion or we take to what we take to be theology mm. as I am in what we take to be science. It's not supposed to be, and I never have intended to do a kind of power grab for theology at the mm. expense of science. Actually, what I'm interested in is showing the contingency, that is to say almost the accidentalness, the kind of historical conditionness of all of the ways that we think about knowledge. No discipline is safe. No <laughs> yeah. discipline is safe, right? And that theology and religion are no less contingent than science. And I'm very, I, I want to stress that really strongly. My, my, my research was not meant to be a kind of triumphal march of theology or religion mm -hmm. to kind of take the place of science as the ultimate authoritative, you know, discourse in modernity. It was more an expression of my sense that these, are, these categories, theology, religion, science, 
are the ways in which we have organized and reorganized our understanding of what certainty is, our understanding of what knowledge is, and indeed, by the way, our understanding of what goodness is. And that if we can unpack and get behind that, we can have a bit more of a sense of what the territory is that we've obscured by choosing to conceptualize things in this way. And I'll just say a quick word about religion. I find the category of religion more unhelpful than the category of science for in terms of its massive oversimplifying and begging of millions of questions, so much so that I would rather the term was never used again. <laughs> I'm a r I really don't like the term religion, which is connecting back to the, you know, the original question, what do I think about the field of science and religion? Well, I don't really like the category of science, and I really don't like the category of religion. The category of religion actually is a name for a, one of the virtues of Christian faith. Yes, that's right. When Aquinas talks about religion, he means one very small, specific area of how to live the Christian exactly. life. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And what is that area? I don't you know. It's it actually is piety, to do isn't with it? Yeah, observance. Yeah. Okay. Being so faithful in one's observances. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, huge, long story short, it comes ultimately in the sort of 17th, 18th centuries to be a category that is exported by Europeans to lots of other cultures with the European, the then already questionable European understanding mm. of the divisions between the different aspects of human life. So they already had delimited and demarcated a sphere of the religious for, for European society so that they could identify the bits of life that are about religion, distinguish them from politics, economics, and indeed the natural sciences. And then the European settlers exported that division of knowledge in human society to all these other cultures and went and showed up and said, oh, and where is their religion? Oh, that's their religion, and carved it up with exactly the same divisions as they had already questionably developed for their own civilization. And when we talk about the world religions, we're literally using their way of organizing societies, other societies, with concepts that were never native to those societies. So it's a colonial, colonialist. It's deeply colonialist. Yeah. And Eurocentric, yeah. Eurocentric, yeah. and aside from that, also it was question begging even in the European context. <laughs> Forget, you know, the export problem. It was already full of holes yeah. domestically. And it's, it's this uh, that's led to religion being understood by lots of people as a belief system. Precisely. Belief in God or belief in gods or when, when actually religion is deeply practical. It's also, it's about community. It's about ritual. It's about so much more than just you believe in this God or you believe in this scripture or Absolutely. Whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and not only is it not just a belief system, it cannot be successfully demarcated mm. from any other sphere of life. There is no social context except the incredibly late modern post-secular European one where religion as such can be circumscribed as somehow belonging only to one specifically defined area of human experience. And we, we know this, right, because scholars of religion can never agree what religion is because none of the definitions actually work. So you have a field, science and religion, which is basically founded on two concepts that don't successfully refer to anything. Well, can, okay. <laughs> well. can, can we just pick a couple of common definitions of religion and show why they don't work as well? Sure. Because uh, otherwise we, we're sort of flying a bit too high over sure, sure. these things. What's a common definition of religion? Well, we said belief system, so that doesn't work. It's often indexed to something supernatural, right? That it's to do with an orientation to or, or claim for the existence of some supernatural qualities. One's position concerning the, the world beyond the physical. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, or a community united in shared ritualistic practices. Yes. Yeah. Yes. None something of these like things stack up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're, we're already quickly running out of definitions of religion. But why is it, why is it not a position about the supernatural? Oh, well, because the notion of the supernatural or 
is already begging a Christian, uh, and indeed not a very successful one either, a very Christian organising of metaphysics, yeah. which isn't shared by um, uh, non-Christian and non-Hellenistically non philosophical cultures. You know, the distinction yes. between nature and supernature. Well, it, it, you could even say that in the Bible you don't see that. No, you don't. Really. The word supernatural doesn't really appear in the Bible. The yeah. word supernatural reflects one incredibly, incredibly narrow way of trying to organise reality. So to give you an example, usually when you ask people, when you point this out, right, and people will say, okay, so maybe what supernatural means is invisible. And that's usually what it comes down to. Yeah, radio right? waves are People invisible. who believe things that, that they cannot see. And it takes about one second to point out to someone that they believe in dozens of things they cannot see. Yeah. In some cases, they're things for which we have no, as such, empirical evidence at all. And by the way, the category of the empirical also dissolves and we actually put it under a microscope. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, belief in supernatural entities doesn't stack up as an account of religion without even starting on the fact that indigenous religions don't have a category of, of the supra-empirical often. So what do we do about this? Yes. As, as people question. who work in science and religion, but also for people who work in science, in, as science or religion, as religion, yeah. theology, <laughs> how do we move forward? What are the actual practical implications of this? Yes, is the right question. <laughs> yeah. So obviously one possible response to it is, well, first of all, I'd like to say, I think that everything we've been talking about is not very widely accepted. The field as a field is still flourishing very happily, despite everything that we've t been talking about being, to me, so obvious that it's a mystery that anyone could get out of bed in the morning and go on studying science and religion. Well, I find it very interesting, but I, I think it's got such appeal and it's such an attractive thing to think about, yes. precisely because in especially Western culture at large, the ordinary person on the street is faced with conflicting claims about what to think, yes. what to believe, how to live, some of which come from what they would consider to be science and some of which come from what they would consider to be religion. Yes. And that creates... And, and you get people on taking either side of this apparent conflict as well. Yeah. Saying, well, because of my religious beliefs, I deny this thing that science is currently telling yep. me. Or because of my position on science... I think religion is a load of nonsense or whatever. Yes. And so because of this massive cultural buy-in to these two categories, I think that's what makes the discourse important and worth investigating. Yes. Yeah, and I, yes. I think science and religion as a field, one way that we can look at it is it's a rebellion against the fragmentation of disciplines that we've seen in the last few hundred years. So before we had science and religion as distinct categories, we had natural philosophy. And it was a way individuals pursued natural philosophy and all of the different things that came under that heading as a way to understand the world, our place within it, uh, how things relate to each other. And we've seen the fragmentation of natural philosophy and the fragmentation of these once cohesive and collective ways of looking at life. And so science and religion, maybe the terms aren't helpful, but the ethos behind the discipline is returning to that kind of more holistic way of viewing things. So maybe, maybe that, I don't know if that's a helpful way of looking at it or not. That's an interesting sort of mission statement, as it were, for, for the field. And I think, that's, I think that's good. I think that's helpful that it's about resisting fragmentation. My, I suppose my, my response to that would be I, I'm not sure that it does that because I think that what actually ends up happening is that because of the way that the terms function, namely that they appear to refer to discreetly delimited modes of operation, even if it's defined quite loosely as a methodology, right? Yeah. As we were discussing earlier. 
what it in, in the end does is reproduce modern disciplinary boundaries. Yeah. Because it takes two things that are supposed to be, you know, here's, here's science and here's religion, and then it imagines ways of bringing them into action. It yeah. Bringing them into interaction, pardon me. So Which presupposes that there are two things in the first place. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so I don't think that, although it's a worthy ideal to try to bring into contact modes of discourse that have drifted apart, the premise of the whole enterprise reproduces the distinction. And incidentally, that's some, some listeners might have heard of something called science-engaged theology, which yes. is an attempt to kind of move the science-religion conversation into a more um, sort of useful space by trying to get it away from these umbrella-level questions that we're discussing and towards specific engagements between specific bits of science and specific bits of religion, um, which I think is, a, is a also a good idea, except for the fact that it does exactly what we've just been saying. It reproduces yeah. the distinction or it reproduces the conceptualizations that have actually created this kind of interaction in the first place. So I want to move the conversation back to practicalities. I think, I'm a scholar of science and religion, I think it's a really helpful, I think it's a really helpful set of interdisciplinary conversations. I resist calling it a field in its own right. Um, but I, I wonder whether we need science and religion to even be able to challenge the, these kinds of things that we've been challenging in this conversation. Because it, it seems like, the alternative is just saying, okay, well, forget science and religion, forget what we're trying to do here, but then we return to these fragmented disciplines that, that already exist. And so don't we need something like science and religion to try and overcome these disciplinary boundaries and say, actually, look at this fantastic work that's being done by people in the field that show that there's so many more similarities between the kinds of questions that are being asked than there are differences. Maybe science and religion itself can bring, can help to move towards a more underlying unity. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. I think it's that's an idea that 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 you know one one can give it a run for its money. Mm -hmm. I'm still a bit suspicious that precisely by framing it in that way, one has already presupposed a certain separateness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even your way of saying, "Oh, it turns out the questions they're asking are, asking are actually really similar," has that element of kind of surprise about it, which I think is intrinsically ahistorical and inappropriate. There's nothing surprising at all because they're both about it because they're both fundamental efforts to know. Uh, sure, but, but in different ways. And I think, I think that's what's really important is that we do need to have some sort of... We don't want to view these disciplines completely in isolation. Um, I'm, with you, I'm with you there, but I think the, what differentiates them is that they have different methodologies and those methodologies arrive at, allow us to arrive at different maybe different perspectives on the same reality. And so I think that they are really valuable in their own right. And if we try and collapse them into each other, for example, that leads to, it gets us intellectually muddled. And I think actually the consequences of that would be perhaps worse than what we have now, where we have fragmented disciplines. Again, I think that's a, that's a good thesis. And I think it's a defensible thesis. I don't know if it can be defended all the way, but I, I think it's a defensible thesis. And I do think we need to be, in particular, responsive to the fact that these terms are, in fact, the way in which modern people in post-secular societies organize their understanding. Mm -hmm. Whatever, um, whether or not they happen to be, quote, religious, these are functioning terms within a particular modern social imaginary, and that needs to be respected, and it's no good pretending that we're just gonna drop them overnight. And I think what the yeah. approach you're describing is quite a good way of honoring that and saying, okay, this is how the conversation has evolved so let's talk about it from here. And I think there's, a, there's something very good and pragmatic about that. The only thing that I would say about the way that you put it is, 
I don't think it's actually easy to distinguish the methodologies. Ah, um, I think that's quite a controversial claim. Th and that is a controversial yeah. claim. That's, of course, one of the claims that I was trying to explore in my thesis. Yeah. And before getting into any specificity about that, the distinction, at the very least, I think it's helpful to notice that the distinction between methodologies that we are probably talking about is itself a highly contingent product of a very particular social and intellectual history in a very particular part of the world. And that the very negotiation between those two trajectories, to, to try to be agnostic about it, has itself produced both of them. Right, so the modern terms have actually, science and religion, have been co-produced by an attempt to sort out different ways of knowing. But that if we go back before that conversation gets off the ground, we get people, sorry, this is like a cliche example, but we get people like Isaac Newton, whose scientific knowledge is deeply organized by certain theological instincts mm. and vice versa, and who doesn't really think that there's one kind of methodology and another kind of methodology. And I, I also think that when we chase down those methodologies and we try to pin it down to you know, something like an, an empiricism that could allow us to determine one methodology as securely scientific, we also find that that kind of falls apart in our hands. But I suppose the question to try to remain pragmatic about it is, given that we have this social evolution, we have this way that people now characteristically and instinctively think about the world, is it appropriate to work with that to try to break some of the caricatures that people have, which I think is where the field of science religion has been really great? Yeah, I agree. And do we try to do that? And or do we also say the sorts of things we've been saying to try to break down this whole way of thinking about knowledge and say, is there a more successful or more responsible or whatever way of thinking about knowledge? And what's the social role for doing that? And that's in a way where I've ended up with my PhD work. And I think one of the reasons why I haven't published it until now, because actually I finished my PhD slightly lost track of time, nearly five years ago. And I think I haven't published it because I just don't know how digestible is everything I've been saying for most people. And I don't mean that in an elitist way at all. But if I want to do this radical questioning of our ways of thinking about knowledge, which we've been doing together, you know, what, what is the point of that? How useful is that to anyone? And I think that's why it's five years later and it's only just coming out. Well, it's, 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 it's hard to work with if, if one accepts what you're saying, that the categories of science and religion don't really work and are otiose, as, as the word we've learned today, it's hard to use that on a daily basis when, you, when you're reading the news and learning about new scientific discoveries or talking about this religious group that practices this particular thing or believes this particular thing. The, the categories will keep reimposing themselves yeah. in your daily interactions with the world, in yes. the West anyway. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's very difficult to have conversations except in those terms. It reminds me a bit of Wittgenstein's uh, little phrase. He says, a picture held us captive and we could not get outside it because the picture lay in our language and our language repeated it to us endlessly. Yes. And so this mm, picture of science and religion is two different things we are captive to in the West. Absolutely we can't easily on. get outside of it. Absolutely spot on. Yeah. So I, t I so agree with you, Barney, and I think that's, that's the challenge that I've been facing. And I think I've stepped away from it for the last few years, partly for pragmatic reasons, because I've had other things to, you know, pressing on my attention. But I also think I needed some distance to see, okay, if I have this understanding or one has this understanding, what can I actually do with that that allows it to speak when people are totally held captive by another picture? But yeah. I'll just say one thing in response to this diagnosis of our social situation. And sorry, this is, this is quite adventurous, right? So just forgive me. 
certain other pictures have held us captive in Western civilization uh, because of the success of a particular concept. Right, to take one example, there are so many other examples, but one good example is race. Right, race is a category that organized our entire civilization in ways that most of us weren't really aware of. Right, at a certain point, you know, thank God and all the powers, it became apparent that that's an OTO's concept. We now know that race has no biological definition, yeah. right? Yeah. And yet, and it's taken quite a long time for our social um, imagination to catch up with that and to stop organizing the world in terms of race. And in fact, of course, that's an ongoing project, right, socially and civilizationally. Well, and it's still called racism and it's yeah. still called racism yeah so we still have the functioning concept but now people treat that concept you know like a hot potato with a glove on yeah we have to be very careful how we use that because it's doing loads of invisible work and thanks to loads of great scholars doing loads of great things the work the invisible work that racism has do has been doing has become more visible and so we can know how to avoid it yeah i think that we shouldn't so what i'm trying to say is i'm not wanting to say for a moment that the categories of science and religion are similar to the term race but we can, over time, challenge and change our relationship to the categories that we use to organize the world. And when it turns out that those categories are illegitimate or poorly founded, we should. Yeah. And the question is, how do we do that? And that's, I think that is that the question. That's <laughs> the question. And I think, by the way, that the way that the term science and the term religion relate is not innocent. I think it leads to the caricaturing of like, the systematic diminishing caricaturing of the 85% of the world who belong to a faith community. Yeah. And indeed, to the inner lives and the social lives of all human beings who, who inherit that imaginary, who somehow end up thinking that some whole dimension of their experience, being, sense of self, sense of world, is somehow like question begging, because it belongs to some sphere called the religious, which is sub subjective and private and emotional and not empirical and all of those other things that go along with our perception of what the term religion is. And so I don't think, anyway, we can talk, that, that's like a whole other topic, but I don't think that these categories are innocent. I think they do need to be challenged because they do loads of invisible work that doesn't help us socially and civilizationally. Not to mention being Eurocentric and colonialist. Well, I can think of an example from recent episode on this podcast when we interviewed Andre on his climate change denial. It took about an hour to get to the point where we realized that he wasn't actually denying the scientific claims that the climate is changing. And his problem was rather with the political and ideological position that most of the people who fight climate change are, are advocating. So we could say politics instead of religion there, but what was actually happening, there was a, there was a difference about desires and goals for yes, humanity and precisely. for society that was the real difference, yes. not the difference on actual scientific positions. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet that was internal to and not external to his relationship with science. Yeah. Right, or what we take to be science. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So to, to, to let you challenge me, right, because you've, said, you've asked me twice now and it deserves an answer, what do we actually do about this? Mm -hmm. I think starting conversations and uh, going on with conversations like the ones we're having and research programs at the academic level are really important, even though they don't cash out in like total social change, because that's not how social change works, but they do cash out eventually, and I do believe that, that when scholars allow themselves to create new ways of thinking, over time that can be a kind of seed for wider social change. So I don't want to understate the role and importance of, of genuinely academic uh, reflection and conversation. 
uh, and sharing those conversations in the public sphere wherever possible. So that, that's one thing. I also think the way we educate children and young people has a huge amount to answer for, that we, in our school curricula, we actually feed them these concepts. Yeah. And exactly how you go about changing that, who knows? I think it's something to do with educating people uh, or with educating children better in history because I think an awful lot of what we're talking about is actually just historical awareness. That's very interesting. I mean, Alistair McGrath said something very similar, didn't he? He, he complained that the school curriculum presents children with an understanding of science as a body of knowledge rather than as a mode of inquiry. Yes. And so because of that, children can grow up saying things like, science tells us that, yeah. uh, which he would say is just a wrong understanding of what science is. Yeah. And to develop that from a very young age, we receive these as distinct disciplines. We say, yes. okay, at 10 in the morning, I'm learning about yeah, religion. I'm doing at 11, I'm doing science. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think school curricula look like just a way of organising the day. But in fact, they're a way of organising the world. And we internalise that way, and then we export it into the rest of our lives. And by the way, that's always going to be the case. I'm not saying we've got any way around that, yeah. but we can at least look a bit more carefully at what's going on when we divide things up like that. Well, but I mean, we have to divide things up one way or another, in a sense. I mean, I, I tend to think of the disciplines as like um, slices of a pie, right? They're, they're arbitrary because it's one pie, which is reality. But you can't just eat a whole pie. You have to cut it up somehow. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. go as far as to say that they're arbitrary, but I think that they are fluid and the, the, the yeah. boundaries are yeah. perhaps... Maybe it's, yeah, it's exactly where we draw the boundaries that are arbitrary. But I do still think that there is something that we call science and that is defined by its methodology. And I don't think it's... I don't think it's helpful to try and completely get rid of that. Mm. Um, but I do think we need to really radically question the role that science plays in our society and the way that it's held to be an ultimate authority when actually... Science is far, far, far more subjective than we are taught that it is in schools and that, we, that many scientists seem to believe that it is. Mm. So um, I think, sounding repetitive now, I think that that's a defensible thesis. I don't know... My, my mind is open about it. I think that in my, my, my doctoral work, I took a position that I would now find questionable, at least to some degree. But I, I think the point you've just made is defensible, I, I have yet to be satisfied that it can, in fact, be be, um, be sustained well, in the face of the historical contingency of science. In some ways, uh, if I could translate what Emily's saying into very practical terms, like, we still need to have scientists. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that, that there are still going to be, and we want there to be, chemists and biologists and physicists yes. doing their investigations and finding out interesting and helpful stuff. 100%, yeah. Yeah. 100%. But I would distinguish that very deeply from the question of whether or not there is some universal essence of science okay. that can mark it out as a particularly reliable or sacrosanct form of knowledge. No, I think I agree a, with you. That's a, yeah. a, a further claim, or rather a different claim from the claim, should we have scientists? The answer, of course, is yes. I guess we can look at the marginal cases of that, like psychology is sort of sits in between science and humanities depending on the way you do it or there's this funny discipline we call or broad collection of disciplines we call the social sciences yes which is very difficult to pin down concrete objective and empirical way the way yes we do, the way we do with physics chemistry and but biology. you know even with physics chemistry yeah. and biology it's incredibly difficult to do 
And even very ambitious and brilliant philosophers find that their accounts of what the subject is, it's really a struggle for them to survive deep scrutiny. And that's, not, that's nothing to do with what we call religion, right? Alex Rosenberg, for example, in his book, uh, Introduction to Philosophy of Science, is totally and utterly uninterested in anything that religious people might or might not have to say. He's literally just trying to do philosophical work on what science is. And it's incredibly difficult to draw any definite boundaries, to identify um, a discrete methodology which would uh, secure and underwrite our sense that science is the most authoritative form of knowledge. But before we go you know, further in that direction, I just want to say I'm equally interested in this process happening the other way around. One of the consequences, as in with religion and theology, even though I've said I don't like that category, so let's just talk about theology for a minute. Theology, too, cannot secure itself as a discrete and delimited enterprise. And therefore, it's far more exposed to what we all call science than many theologians would like it to be. And I think that's one of the other, that's the other side of the story, which I was trying to tell in my doctoral work. If science isn't as secure as we thought it was and isn't as defined and delimited as we thought it was, neither is theology. So the kind of refuge that religious people have taken in a certain sort of separateness of their characteristic knowledge of faith from other types of knowledge that keeps them feeling safe and secure in it can't be sustained either. So it's not that I'm interested only in taking down science. It's not, not that at all. It's more like both the category of science and the category of the knowledge of faith or theology or whatever we want to call it, whatever category we settle on, are much more contingent, vulnerable, uh, fluid than we would like them to be. So I'm just as interested in challenging people of faith as I am in challenging scientists. There is no safe, ultimately safe space, I think, in which a knowledge of faith can just sit there being like, well, here I am, I have my knowledge from, from, from somewhere else and it can't ever be challenged by, uh, by anything else. That type of compartmentalization can be used to serve a scientific claim for ultimacy and it can also be used to serve a religious claim for ultimacy and I don't think either of them is sustainable. Can we have uh, any examples of that? Of, ha of where science... Um, destabilizes re the religious claim to ultimacy. I mean, we can look historically at, say, um, the Galileo affair, although that's a very uh, hackneyed example, or we could look at the whole creation-evolution yeah. debate, or even more modern, more modern questions like I brought up climate change or even the anti-vaxxer mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. what, how do these function as examples of where religion doesn't claim sort of dominance or, or have the final word on what is scientifically true or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or if you have another example, that would be great. I think modern biology is a really good example. Okay. Yeah, in general. The way in which modern biology challenges our understanding, for example, of the fact that it is something definite to be a human being. Yeah, okay. Right, that it turns out we don't actually know what human is. Oh, so for example, debates around abortion that are currently going on in America. Well, well, well that would be one specific application. Yeah. But more generally, the history of, for example, evolution yes. indicates that there is no stable essence of a human. Yeah, there was no one moment when human beings came into existence. It's a, um, it's a far more gradual thing than that. Yeah, I mean, there is no moment where X was human wasn't human and then x was human mm -hmm. or indeed x was hu was not human and then x had a child y which was human yeah you know because that's not 
uh, and this is relating, by the way, to a fascinating, one of my favourite conversations in philosophy of biology about the existence or not of such a thing as a species, mm. which again, it turns out, doesn't really, you know, there isn't really a successful empirical definition of a species, um, which is interesting considering that we've built most of our civilization at the level of social order on a notion of human rights, but we don't really know what a human is anymore. Yeah. Um, that, that's, I think, one incredibly fundamental example of something which theology and religion simply is not insulated from, because human is a fundamental category in, for example, the Semitic religions, which then co which cashes out in all kinds of concrete ways, including end-of-life issues, beginning-of-life issues, transhumanism, synthetic biology, you yeah. know, like global geopolitics, all of these sorts of things. That's just one example. But I think they multiply everywhere. And the reason that they multiply... Sorry, last sentence. The reason they multiply is... One of the ways in which people have organized these totally spurious categories of science and religion is by making it sound as though religion is not mainly a knowledge about this world. Ah, yes. That it's a non-empirical knowledge. And I think that's totally false. Religions, in the way that they're you know, problematically defined, are incredibly interested in this world. They are about this world. They are about what this world is, what it is like, and how we should live in it. Well, they very clearly have an impact on politics which shows the sort of touchdown uh, because there are debates about abortion or euthanasia or you know whether vac covid vaccines should be um, compelled or something like that it just shows that religion yeah it takes a great interest in what happens in the world not only takes a great interest mm. in it but actually is constitutionally committed to s certain kinds of account of what this world actually is it's not just at the level of value, it's the level of truth claim. Yeah. So I think that religion and theology are not insulated from science at all. And the whole attempt to compartmentalize them, either to keep science safe or to keep religion safe, is doomed to failure. Mm -hmm. Everybody is less safe than they thought. So, so <laughs> sh should we all just pack up and go home and give up trying to believe anything? Are we, are we, are we heading down a fully skeptical line here? We're falling into the bog of skepticism. Yeah. Mm. Do you want to rescue us from the bog of skepticism? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to. Whether or not I can is another matter. Um, well, I mean, you, you, you yourself believe certain things and live a certain way. Yes. I mean, you, you wouldn't call yourself a skeptic all the way down, would you? No, definitely not. Yeah. No. I think, first of all, I'm in the middle of, I think, quite a long reflection and processing of what I concluded in my doctoral research. And so this conversation is happening at a point where I'm much more clear about the framing of what I think the problem is mm. and haven't really started the significant constructive work on the far side, partly because I think it's most important to get clear on what the problem is. Yes. Well, um, you can't get to answers unless you frame the question correctly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. And I think a lot of my energy has been taken up framing a question that I think hasn't been enough asked. So... I'm at a kind of early stage in getting to a point of answering the question that you pose, which is what do we actually do about it? I don't think total skepticism is necessary or, nece or particularly commendable. I do think we need to change our expectations of what knowledge is. Mm -hmm. And I think that both science and religion in these senses that we've been talking about it are heirs to a way of thinking about knowledge that almost guaranteed we could never have it. And mm. what we really need is to think through again in the light of all of our experiences as a human family over the past centuries, what is it to know and how is knowledge related to living and acting? 
Because you could say, for example, that knowledge should not be seen as the same thing as certainty. For sure not. That, that it's not a sort of final, unchallengeable, truth, ultimate truth. That knowledge is always provisional. That knowledge is, is always provisional. You know what, though? Even that way of putting it is in some way beholden to the notion that the ideal would be certainty. Mm. You know, provisional is provisional in relation to a possible certainty. I think that whole spectrum of relations to something that we call knowledge needs to be revised. This might take us down a path we don't want to go down, but do you think that this is a consequence of a creaturely predicament? Do you think that God has certain knowledge? Or do you think knowledge in and of itself can never be certain, so even God doesn't have certain knowledge? Well, you probably will both sigh when, you, when, <laughs> when I say this, but um, I think the category of certainty needs a lot of unpacking. Okay. Why I am I surprised? Think, yeah, why, yeah, sorry. Yeah, and at this point, they're both, you know, desperately reaching for the door and trying to get away. Um, <laughs> let me just be, say one thing about that. I don't think that, for example, an indigenous culture has much use for a category of certainty. Mm -hmm. There are ways of living and of being human which aren't organised around such a kind of purely abstract notion of possession of an absolute, an absolute transparency that is, that is intellectual. I think we need to have a notion of truth and knowledge and something like certainty that is, that is more sensitive that reflects a much more embodied, communal and historical way of being. Sure, and, and I, don't, I don't think I want to dispute that too much, but what I really want to ask is whether we can apply this to God uh -huh. as well. Uh -huh. Or um, whether you would want to apply it to God as well. Mm -hmm. That's probably a better way of putting it. Maybe it's something we can't know. Uh, <laughs> I am, in general, extremely impatient with any kind of enterprise to know what God knows mm -hmm. uh, or to imagine what God knows. I think that when we start to think or talk about God as an object with or without properties in, la in, in that analytic sense, we go astray very quickly. I'd rather explore, uh, not right now, but in general, I'd rather explore ways of talking and relating to God that help us to overcome our consistent tendency to think of God as a very super powerful version of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think an awful lot of analytic philosophy of religion, including conversations about divine knowledge, do exactly the opposite for us in the end. We tend to project upwards, we think of ourselves and then just minus various flaws and inhibitions and that's God. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, there's that and there's the additional supposition that even if in a very supernormal sense, God is basically an object, even if a not physical one. And I think it's much more helpful to think about, uh, you know, what uh, a colleague of mine likes to say, God and the world don't add up to make two. Yes. And somehow we need to preserve a, um, an architecture for thinking and talking about God that keeps it in the front of our mind, God and the world do not add up to make two. And I think talking about God's knowledge in contrast to our knowledge very often has the opposite effect. Well, I guess you could say it pre the, the only kind of knowledge we've ever known or have is contingent and provisional. And, and that's if we are Christians and we do believe in God, we would say that that's because we belong to the finite created order. Yes. So then to talk about what is not created, um, we can't do it because the only categories we have come from creation. Yes, or at least we can do it. We can talk about what's not created, but only by analogy with the created, which then puts all of our conversation under a different kind of yes. 
in a different kind of light. But you saying that, Barney, maybe provides us with a, a, a kind of final thought about the question of what is knowledge. That if the fundamental, you know, and you put it very nicely, um, Emily, with the creaturely predicament, maybe we can find a way to think and talk about what it is to know that is basically relational, right? That is basically to do with us being in a relation with something that is continually and by definition beyond us. Mm -hmm. Which may be, but maybe reality, it may be God, you know, however we want to dress that up. But that there is some, so that knowledge isn't thought of as a property or a possession or a discrete thing that I either do or don't have, but is actually a mode of being in relation. Somebody like Whitehead, I think, has kind of tried to explore this a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably a more helpful door to push when we think about what it is to know. That may be a good place to wrap up. Uh, Can I make a final comment? Please do. One of the things that I'm aware of when you know we have conversations like this is that it can seem, and I should, I suppose, have said this at the beginning, it can seem kind of rarefied, right? That this is um, not a very practical uh, or day-to-day -day concern. How do we know something? You know, we all get up in the morning and get on with our day without having answered that question. Mm -hmm. And there's something very important in that question for philosophers like me to hang on to. But what I would like to push back against and in order to, to, to frame the conversation we've just had is, what I think I know is precisely what's at stake in how I live my day. Yes. Not necessarily at the cognitive level, but that there is nothing abstract about epistemology, right? about the study of, of how we know. Because it's only in relation to certain things I take to be true and good that I get up at all. Yes. So we're talking about something incredibly existential. We're not talking about some idle luxury of philosophers. We're talking about what it is that orients us every single day. And I don't think there's anything remote about that. It may be that a particular way of talking about it is rather remote or seems speculative, but I think it's the most intimately practical thing that there can be especially in relation to what do I orient my life. Especially because the fact that people clearly have different conceptions of what is true and good is accounts for basically 100% of the conflicts in the exactly. world today. Exactly. And characterises all of our relationships, those differences. Yeah. Well, that's a lot to be chewing over. Uh, thank you very much, Carmody. That was really, really great <laughs> yeah, to chat you. that through with you both. Thank yeah. you both. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.